Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm your host, Mari Frank, and we are sitting here at the Data Protection Summit 2008. And I am so thrilled to be able to present to you my guest, Amit Yaran, Chief Executive Officer of NetWitness. Let me tell you a little bit about his background. Amit Yaran led the management buyout of NetWitness from Mantech in 2006 and he serves as the chairman and CEO. Prior to NetWitness, he was appointed as director of the National Cybersecurity Division of Homeland Security and as CEO and advisor to InQtel, the venture arm capital of the CIA. Formerly, Mr. Uran served as the vice president of worldwide managed security services at the Symantec Corporation. Mr. Yaran was the co-founder of Riptech, a market-leading IT security company, and served as its CEO until the company was acquired by Symantec in 2002. He served as an officer of the United States Air Force in the Department of Defense's Computer Emergency Response Team, and he is with us, and he's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I didn't get to go to your keynote, but I heard it was fabulous, and I wanted to ask you some questions. I'm so thrilled to have you here. We didn't know that the CIA had a venture capital arm. That's pretty crazy. Can you tell us about that? It, <laughs> it is pretty crazy, and it's not a concept that most people would uh, would say rolls off the tongue. Uh, in fact, it's a little bit uh, more awkward than, than you would imagine. It's not only uh, a CIA-funded venture capital entity, it's actually a nonprofit organization as well. So typically you don't hear the words nonprofit and venture capital or CIA used in the same sentence. Right. But, uh, in this case, uh, that happens to, to, to apply to InQtel. It's actually a really interesting organization. The, uh, the government is not particularly adept at tapping into new and emerging technologies and, and the wonderful uh, world of venture capital and, and that has emerged here in California and, and in other parts of the country as well. And uh, Director George Tennant uh, at the time thought that uh, having a venture capital entity, if you will, tap into what's happening in, in Silicon Valley here in the rest of California would help bring some of these emerging technologies uh, to the government for use at the CIA and, and even elsewhere. And so it's really a, uh, a very out-of-the-box concept that seems to be fairly effective at doing just that. So you never became a spy? Never became a spy. <laughs> <laughs> now, you also had a very exciting job being the director of the National Cybersecurity Division of Homeland Security. That sounds like a huge responsibility. Pretty scary. What was that like? 
it was it was a great learning experience. Uh, the folks at the Department of Homeland Security have a, a very noble and, and profound uh, task mission, um, and the undertaking at the time was really to help the uh, department and the fe- the uh, the federal government put the the focal point for cybersecurity at the Department of Homeland Security to sort of integrate it into all of the various protection efforts that DHS was trying to get uh, off the ground. And it was a unique opportunity to really get involved with the Homeland Security efforts at the ground level and help them help guide the programs and get them off to uh, the most productive start possible. Were there really very serious threats to um, to the cybersecurity at that time when you were there? You, you know, there, there have been serious threats to uh, cybersecurity infrastructure, both in the government as well as in the private sector, and helping the government better understand those threats and better understand how they can work with the private sector from the largest of corporations to individuals in how they can, how they can protect themselves and what types of thinking they need to take into account as they design cyber protection plans. Yeah. Well, what would you say are the top issues and current cyber threats facing organizations today? Well, there are uh, the, the top challenge is really a, lock, a lack of security culture, security awareness at the senior executive, at, at the business level, if you will, uh, where they don't understand how much they rely on their IT systems and, more importantly, the data that runs across their uh, their networks and, and in their computer databases. And all of these systems and all of the data that, their corpor- that these corporations uh, or other organizations rely on is, is really at risk. The, the threat environment is very complex. There's a, a very uh, a professional criminal element that understands very much that there are dollars on the line and they, and they deal and they uh, implement their nefarious activities, uh, you know, in a very focused and determined way. There are nation-state uh, adversaries which are going after our IT systems, after our computer systems. And it's, they don't just view it as a war, uh, if you will, uh, in, in the cyber domain between their government and our government. They're really looking at their national interest and our national interest, which frequently is tied to our industrial base, our economic interest and uh, it's fair game for these governments and these uh, nation state actors to go after uh, targets in the private sector. I think of China and I think of Korea and I, I, am I on the right track of these countries that we really don't have any kind of control over what they're doing or any kind of agreements as to what's fair game? Yeah, there are, the, the laws are very, very far behind, as, as one might imagine, uh, when it comes to dealing with cyber threats and, and cyber attacks. And so the international political infrastructure is not yet matured to a point where, you know, we can deal diplomatically with, with all, all of these uh, entities. The technology itself is one that really lends itself to uh, anonymization, people able to operate, you know, covertly, if you will. You don't know who's really connecting to your systems uh, and so on and so forth. So it, it is an environment where our adversaries can work against us with reasonable efficiency. Uh, clearly, the Chinese have a, uh, the Chinese government has some established doctrine in, in this area. And I think that that, uh, that will continue to expand. Uh, and again, playing on the, the notion that you don't really know where these things are coming from. I think some other adversaries are taking advantage of the fact that we would typically attribute uh, things to China because it comes from their IP space. So it's, it's, it's complex, but clearly there's a lot of activity going on in this area. Right, and we think of the, uh, the Russians uh, sitting at a, at a kitchen table and being able to do their cyber hacking and uh, cyber m- maliciousness yeah. I mean, these are very uh, technically sophisticated, uh, you know, groups of, of, of folks, be it uh, in, in Asia or, or the Russian or other organized criminal elements. They very clearly identify the value of what they're attacking and, and you know, everything from credit card numbers uh, and, uh, and, and sensitive personal information all the way up through bank account numbers and the information you would need to to perpetrate uh, uh, transactions on someone else's account. 
all the way through spam and, and other ways to, uh, to forward their business objectives. And there are literally tens of millions of dollars moving around in this underground commodities mm -hmm. exchange. Uh, that uh, that the or, that the organized crime has uh, has established. So I don't know if it's around uh, their kitchen table or at their cyber sweatshop, <laughs> or if it's uh, or if it's in a, a sort of darker and, and more treacherous uh, venue. But these things are definitely happening. Oh, it, it's really frightening. So there's a growing concern today that there's a tremendous amount of focus on investment in IT and security programs, yet they're failing. So how do you explain that? Well, unfortunately, a lot of them are failing. And unfortunately, I think a lot of them are going to continue to fail for a long time to come. Uh, clearly, investing in IT and IT security infrastructures can improve uh, your level of protection, your resilience, if you will, against you know, more sophisticated threats. But no computing system is impenetrable. And at some level, uh, all of the computing infrastructures are, are, are uh, interconnected. And so this high level of interconnectivity with very efficient, you know, automated data flows and processing across the different uh, companies and suppliers and customers, uh, it creates great efficiency in the, in, the, uh, in the economy, in the workflow, in the business process. It also creates a lot of interdependence and interconnectivity, which ultimately can result in, uh, in security exposure. Uh, I think it's going to be a number of years before we have a, a more secured, more deterministic uh, computing environment where, where security is prioritized. You know, I know you're, you're highly uh, skilled techie, and, uh, and I'm not. In fact, tomorrow my program that I'm presenting is with a bunch of lawyers and people who understand the human factor and security breaches. So even if you have all this great security, if you have a dirty insider, it, you know, which that's pretty scary, or if you have social engineers who know how to get the information, that also can destroy your, your fabulous uh, security system. Uh, what do you think about that? I couldn't agree more. Uh, we, in, the, in the past, the information security profession has been very focused on where the flaws exist in software, where the network where the network can be exploited by hackers, if you will, that will break the protocols, break the applications, and make computers do you know bad things on on their behalf. I think what we've seen, especially in recent years, is that the attacks on the network, uh, you know, we're investing a lot in detecting that sort of activity. We're seeing the attacks go up, you know, what we call the application stack. So folks. They continue to attack the, the networks, but they've realized that the value in the information is happening, you know, within the application itself, not just by attacking the network. And so they're, they're, uh, they're abusing the application, if you will, the privilege that's been given to a user in an application to make the applications feed them more, you know, data they shouldn't have access to, uh, uh, different types of aggregations of data, and so on. And, and so we're seeing attacks go to the data layer, if you will, instead of in the IT layer. Uh, and as this happens, what we're seeing is that the threat uh, increasingly looks like it's coming from insiders. And it might be uh, folks on the outside that have access to internal applications, or it might be insiders, which are your employees, perhaps even working in, a, in an international facility or through one of your suppliers that have uh, been granted access to your to your computing environment, but those insiders have the access ultimately to do the most damage. Right. They say the weakest link in an organization is really the, the human factor. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Are, are there a lot of Kevin Mitnicks around? You know who Kevin Mitnick is. We actually had him on our radio show. Oh, great. And I read his books, The Art of Intrusion and The um, Art of Deception, the Art of Intrusion was about the hackers and how they do it, and The Art of Deception was about all of the social engineers, which he was, you know, Brilliant. a master at. Yeah. Sure. And uh, so that was pretty scary. That's what got me to want to do that panel on the human factor was like, oh, my goodness. So, you know, what, what did you all do, for example, at Homeland Security to deal with those kinds of issues? Well, there's a, uh, there's a lot can be done. 
on the human factor as well. And you know, security is a, is ultimately a process, not a specific destination point, which I, I think uh, cannot be achieved. In that security process, we look at technologies, we look at process, and we look at, at the people factor. And in the people factor, there's a number of activities in terms of raising people's awareness, raising people's educations, and the types of things, making sure they know uh, that they won't get a, a call from IT asking them for passwords and how to get on certain systems. Right. and, and uh, But ultimately, the, the miscreants in this area are very creative. Even if you're a trained professional, some of the sophisticated uh, techniques, what they call spear phishing, really uh, target their uh, you know misinformation, or they they, car they target their deception so that it looks like a, a legitimate request. Uh, ultimately, I think we have to raise security as a culture in in computing environments above and beyond the awareness. Right. And when we, I don't know how many security breaches there's been, but I've been watching, you know, the chronology on the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. I think there's like 220,000, uh, 220 million uh, data files have been breached since 2005 when ChoicePoint was really the first one that became public. So we're talking about tremendous amount of personal information that has been acquired by unauthorized persons. Absolutely. And, you know, as we start getting more automated data exchanges between the clearinghouse, the different points which might collect uh, data and use it in different parts of the business process. When you look at the future of the web in, in Web 2.0 and service-oriented architectures and some of the data flows that, uh, that RFID technologies are, are going to introduce, the amount of data which is collected at various points in in, uh, in any process or person's life is going to be overwhelming, and our ability to track and manage that really we need to start thinking through that now, uh, or it's going to or it's going to turn around and, and be a big problem for us. Yeah, that's what the privacy officer of the company should be looking at, along with the security officer. And uh, you know, I come from the privacy side, and you come from the security side, and they have to really be together because you can have security without privacy. So if you have all these secure, uh, you know, firewalls or whatever you have, encryption, but if somebody can still get access I mean, to sensitive information, you know, that goes back to auditing, like, why do you need to collect this? You know, who, who should have access? Why should everybody have access? So the security and privacy side really need to be married together in a, a much tighter way, don't you think? Absolutely, and the privacy policy, which ultimately, of which you know, data retention might be one component of it. How, what does it cost to protect the information? This this data, how long should we be retaining it? For what purpose are we retaining it? Who has access to it? Ultimately, uh, those privacy uh, enhancements or privacy advocacy positions could help to improve security by lessening the value of of certain targets or lessening the amount that needs to be invested to adequately secure uh, certain targets. Can we do things, you know, that would, you know, we can, and we can store character, we can store metadata or characteristics about data, which would be good enough for our business purposes, but ultimately better protect privacy as well. I think the, the awareness of privacy and driving privacy policies into large organizations can actually serve to help improve security. Yeah, I think it's starting to happen. You know, in the state of California, we have uh, the very first Office of Privacy Protection. The only other state is Wisconsin. And um, this past year, we passed legislation that, that that Office of Privacy Protection is no longer in the Department of Consumer Affairs. It was brought up to the Department of Security in California. So now they're working in tandem, which is the first time that something like that has happened. So I think you're right on that that's um, really has to happen. And at least California, we're so crazy out here in California, we start all the new things. Uh, you know, I'm from the East Coast, and I keep thinking people in California are crazy. But <laughs> as the case may be. The, but we're very privacy conscious. You're very privacy conscious. And the rest of the country appreciates it, by the way. Had there been no SB I mean, 1386, exactly. Choice Point never would have, uh, you know, the, the, the compromise choice. Right. Would not and we have, know it's been going on way longer than that. And we know it's been going on way longer yeah. than that. 
interestingly enough, uh, however, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, being very sensitive to the privacy concerns, was the first department in the U.S. federal government which actually created a chief privacy officer, yes. uh, a lawyer by training, by, by background, who had been through the privacy uh, issues in, uh, in her prior life uh, as a uh, counsel and, and privacy officer in the private sector. And so, again, the marriage of security and privacy, I think, is critical to doing both jobs properly. Yes, yes. So what measures should companies take to improve their operational security? You know that's a uh, that, that that's a great question, and I, and I wish I could give you a categorical. Everybody should do X, Y, and Z, and they'll be safe. I think the issues, unfortunately, you know, are far more uh, involved and are far more complex. Uh, there are a few basic, you know, blocking and tackling types of things that people need to be doing. I think the uh, the conclusion I have made, which uh, I guess conflicts with what a lot of people believe uh, is that operational security has no direct tie or co positive correlation with the security programs that are implemented uh, for regulatory compliance purposes. And whether you're looking at uh, a SOX compliance issue or whether you're looking at a, um, you know, a, in the government, a FISMA compliance issue, the compliance requirements at best can drive good operational security spend, but they're, they've been largely ineffective at measuring uh, any sort of operational security improvement unless the organization implementing them uh, really, really takes a, uh, a hard look at the intent of the regulatory uh, requirement and how they can leverage oper operational improvements uh, in their investments. So do you really favor self-regulation? I didn't say I favor self-regulation. <laughs> I just said the existing uh, regulatory regime was, well, you know, wasn't very accurate uh, in improving operational security. It's easier so, to criticize than offer <laughs> constructive alternatives. Well, I, I think about you know, self-regulation in the area of, of uh, data brokers you know, and, and how they tried to do that several years ago when the Federal Trade Commission set that up, and it never worked. And uh, we still don't have oversight for data brokers like ChoicePoint, Axiom, now LexisNexis and ChoicePoint are together. And, and for me, as a privacy professional, that really worries me. And I, and I worry that, you know, okay, so we have Gramm-Leach-Bliley, we have SOX, we have all these laws that I know are really challenging for corporations, but, um, and the, you know, Fair Credit Reporting Act, et cetera. It just seems to me that we have to have regulations because the good companies will always do the best practices, but there's lots of companies that won't. And so I, I'm kind of a proponent of let's have some standardization that's really enforceable and that works. What about you? It, it, standards are uh, a challenge in, in IT, and they're you know particularly challenging in, in IT security where you know diversity and uh, is is the the name of the game, and everybody uh, the the technologies change so rapidly. So how do you create the standards that are? Uh, specific enough and the regulations which are specific enough that sort of force people's action and force people to, to operate in what is the public's best in, best interest and at the same time give them the flexibility so that they're not years from now you know doing things that just simply don't make sense i think it can yeah, because it can't keep up with the technology up, yeah. but you know in 1386 if you remember we we put a standard of like when we're talking about you don't have to disclose a security breach if the um, if the database was encrypted, and then we tried in that law to say the encryption at the level that's determined at the time, the current standard of what is the best encryption, couldn't legislation be written kind of like that to say the standard, and then use a standard of whatever the standard of CISSO or whatever it is. Yeah, you know, it, it, so so that type of uh, mindset could work, and it could work through regulation. Uh, and I think it could also work through through self-regulation. If the standards are published through a self-regulatory or, or government regulatory mechanism, and if performance against the standard is, and the measurements of that performance are done in an open, you know, transparent way, if you will, then I think either one of those methods could be effective. In the case that that you were uh, that you were just talking about with encryption of the database in in 1386. 
I, again, sort of, does that mean that if the if an attack happened at the application layer and information could be compromised by using the database application, uh, would that you know is, is that still a reportable event? I think the answer is clearly yes, but yeah, you could it, interpret it, it that you know yeah. the, that the database was encrypted and therefore. Yes. We wanted to go back and say that if it was an unscrupulous insider and they had the key to decrypt, then that would be an exception to the rule. We never got to go back because we were afraid to change, go back and open the door. (laughs) But but that was, even at the time, that's what we were thinking. But we didn't want to push too hard because we wanted to get it through. But that was what those of us who were proponents of the legislation tried to think that would be the next step. But we don't have a lot of time. I want to know, so what does NetWitness do, and how, how are their solutions different from other? NetWitness is a network uh, monitoring technology. It, it, at its core, it's an it's a, it's a IT forensic product. So we would look at network traffic. We would be able to record the traffic and reconstruct what actually happened in, in an uh, uh, irrefutable way with all of the appropriate uh, chain of custody procedures around it, and we've been involved in a number of, uh, of prosecutions, uh, it can be used, I won't say in an infinite number of ways, but it can be used to monitor performance of systems, it can be used to monitor the behavior of applications, it can be used to monitor the transport or behavior of particular data elements within applications, uh, and so it can be used for compliance and monitoring purposes as well as to observe and enforce improvements in uh, privacy policy. Are, mm. you know, do we have unencrypted channels, unencrypted applications, which are traversing the infrastructure, sharing social security numbers and credit card numbers and, and PII or, or uh, privately identifiable information or non-public information uh, that would be sensitive to the data owners, the individuals, or to the corporation in, in terms of their intellectual property? I know there are a lot of companies that make similar products. How are, how is NetWitness a little different or better? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there are a lot of companies that build products focused on, you know, data leakage. There are products that look for, uh, you know, intrusion detection systems that would look for network attacks. And there are products that would do, you know, a, a disk forensics on a, on, a, on a system which was compromised. We actually don't fit into any of those categories. We sort of complement the existing set of products and make them uh, more targeted, more intelligent, more efficient, if you will. We help people really derive value out of uh, other IT security infrastructure that, they're, that they've already deployed. Well, give us your, your website so people who are listening, we, you know, we're, we are on the campus of the University of California, Irvine, but we also air live in Newport Beach, Irvine, and all those areas. So let us know where we can learn more Great. about you and, <laughs> and your website. Absolutely. Okay. The website is www.netwitness.com. Terrific. Well, we sure appreciate it, and we'd love to have you come back on and tell us more about all the great things that you're doing. Great. It was great being with you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Well, here we are still at the Data Protection Summit here in beautiful Irvine, California, and we are sitting now with Kevin Nixon, who is the Director of Security Business Strategy and Product Marketing for Datacastle. Kevin Nixon has over 25 years' experience in MIS design and development. Also, he knows he knows a tremendous amount about information security, business continuity, and disaster recovery. And he joined Data Castle in January 2008, pretty recently, as the Director of Security and Business Strategy and Product Marketing. He was responsible for public policy review and compliance analysis. He educates corporate management and staff on pending and existing technology legislation relevant to client employees, customers, partners, and vendors. In his role, Kevin has testified before the Republican High Tech Task Force, the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, and several infrastructure security boards and committees. And we are so thrilled that you joined us today, Kevin. Thank you for taking such the time to join us. Thank you very much for your kind invitation. How is it that you got into the IT industry? Well, I go back a little ways. I moved to Washington, D.C. out of college. I grew up in Texas, 
and went to work at J. Walter Thompson. Um, I worked on the Allegheny U.S. Air name change, and when that project was finished, I thought, gosh, the travel industry sounds kind of fun. Let me see what I can do related to that. And so in the 70s and 80s, uh, you could kind of move rather easily. Systems were big and, and, and just gaining popularity. Um, I really got fascinated with uh, the airline automation industry. And, in fact, I got so fascinated that I managed to, as or after I worked on Sabre for a few years, I managed to turn on um, a test program that they were running uh, to provide users with boarding pass capabilities. So we, we turned out to be the first agency to distribute boarding passes. Ah. About three weeks later. Yeah. I get a call from Kathy Masunas, who was the director of um, product development and eventually went on to become president of Sabre. And she said, how did you get into the system and do this? This wasn't released yet. <laughs> uh -uh. And so I explained. And she said, how about you come down in about a month and interview? I think we need someone with your security background and I said I don't have any security <laughs> background and she says you have a natural curiosity that counts that's how I got involved so come to the light side instead of going to the dark side exactly perhaps. <laughs> exactly then you became a security expert how did you become a security expert I let me just say it's probably not expert it's just probably walking wounded you know <laughs> after you after you face enough you 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 get a thick skin um, Sabre and American Airlines began to expand into various countries, uh, EU, uh, South America, Japan, um, and uh, Australia. Um, at that point, there became a need to have very granular application security, and they were looking for, I guess, a victim to take responsibility <laughs> of the project. And I, and, and I thought it would be kind of fun because I've always been very interested in laws and regulations. So back in 1989, when the project began, the European Union uh, had what was similar to what we have, what we call SOX today, mm -hmm. uh, full disclosure public audits. And um, so I really wanted to learn and roll up my sleeves and figure out how to protect data on a regional basis, which was a brand new concept in 89. Mm -hmm. That's sort of what drew me into the security area, and I've been hooked ever since. Well, there is quite a bit of difference between the United States and the rest of the world with regard to privacy yes. and security protection. And So why don't you talk about that? Because I don't think uh, enough of our audience really understands about you know, opt-in, opt-out, oh, privacy protection, and all that stuff. The main difference, I believe, and it's a personal opinion, and I don't think there are any research papers out there that have looked into it, but I really believe that Europe and the European Union were early adopters of the need for privacy regulations because they had two world wars on their soil. Mm -hmm. They know what it's like to have uh, privacy invasion and information used against them in horrible well, You think ways. in Germany, right? Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and yeah. so I believe that that probably uh, ingrained in them an innate, um, not fear, but um, um, determination to not ever let that happen again. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the European Union had disclosure laws eight, uh, 18 years ago before um, SOX ever came along. We, um, there are Scandinavian regulations that, um, and they're not part of the European Union, if you recall. I mean, you know, Finland, uh, Sweden, and Denmark are unto themselves. Mm -hmm. So those are different things. There are many different aspects to the way security is done in Europe. Um, uh, the UK Investigative Powers Act, for example, a person can be investigated and doesn't have to be notified. Mm -hmm. um, and there are things in the uh, in Europe like legal intercept, 
which is the legalize, legalized wiretapping and interception of phone calls to prevent terrorism. And that can be for local or international. Here in the United States, the USA Patriot Act only covers uh, international phone calls. But that's how some of the – that's a big different environment mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. than the United States. Mm -hmm. Totally mm -hmm. more regulated, more conscious, more aware. Also, with companies in, in the European Union, a company that has data on its customers cannot sell that information or share that information with others without prior permission from its customers, which is different from the United States, where companies that have our data and databases can, sh can share and sell unless we opt out. And the California is the only, well, there's, let's see, California, I think it's North Dakota, are the only states that a company must provide, get uh, prior permission before selling or sharing your information with a third party. But under the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, if, right. if it's an affiliate, you don't have any right to opt out. No, so, not at all. So we don't have those kinds of protections where we know what's being bought and sold, like like they do in the European Union. And I think people would be afraid, really, really afraid, if they knew where all of it was going, right. where all of their data was going. Yeah. So can you talk about a little bit about that? I think so. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, you, you talk about, you know, what Europe is like and why data privacy is where it is today. Um, we're 18 years behind, let's say. I think that comes from our founding fathers. We're, we're a nation of constitutional rebels. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, and freedom I and mean, we freedom. Were, yeah, liberty. And, and the reason this country was established was because someone was looking into someone else's business and freedom of religion and speech and everything else. We were founded on those principles. Right. Give me so, liberty or give me death. Correct. And we stand very strongly behind the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And steer, changing direction on a big ship like that takes a lot of time and a lot of room. Mm -hmm. that's, that's why we have the big gap in the U.S. today. You know, our U.S. Constitution doesn't even mention the word privacy. No, it doesn't. But the California Constitution does ensure privacy. That's why we're much more privacy conscious. It's right in that first paragraph of our Constitution. So what changes in awareness need to occur when we have this global economy? Because we're finding, you know, I mean, it is a globalized economy. You can go on the Internet. You can buy things from anywhere it's, you know, you can talk with people. I mean, talk about the, the Scandinavians. I used to have au pairs take care of my kids from Denmark. Mm -hmm. They'd live with us. They'd go to school, like uh, exchange students. You know, now I can, I can, it used to be hard to call them long distance. Now we just get on the email and right. I can talk to these people. I mean, we are in a globalized world. So what needs to happen? Well, people need to practice uh, some very, a very simple rule. Uh, and it has four steps. Uh, it's common sense and good judgment. Step number one is they need to figure out where their important data is. The second is consider what really is or constitutes important data and have you thought of everything. Number three is are you protected? How are you protecting it? What tools are you using? And then I jokingly say step number four is go back to one, number one and repeat often and frequently because you do have to have a constant reevaluation because the information that you possess, banks, statements, etc., changes d daily. Uh, uh, in um, in various dis different aspects. Mm -hmm. And and now when our computers are so small and they can contain so much information that even a tiny little business that just does internet business can have tremendous amount of information about its customers and oh. its consumers or whatever. So when you talk about what's what data is being collected for at least from the consumer side, you know, we give information we don't know what they're doing with it. We don't know really how they're collecting it and what they are combining it with. 
if they're an affiliate, I mean, are they combining it and have a 20-page, 30-page profile on you? Which I know when I've seen, for example, my my choice point Correct. data, it's been like 30, 40 pages. And we've seen different kinds of uh, data collected on people for medical privacy, for financial privacy you don't know exactly what it is so it's like you're right it's it's the banks it's the companies that collect information they need to ask what data do we need and they need to ask why is it important right correct <laughs> i mean i'm going I, to your question I, I because agree. for me as a consumer i can i can stop when someone asks me for information i can say what what data are you collecting about me well the person who I'm talking to doesn't know what other information. I can't find that out very easily, right? Correct. Um, and it, like, there are some rules in California, well, but basically can, nationally you can't you, really you find can, out. You can – that's one of the awareness features that all consumers really need to become more aware of, and that is That they can't get it. <laughs> well, or, or challenge why it's being collected. Right. They can say – why do you need this? I don't want to give it to you. Correct. I mean, if somebody is on the phone with you and, and you've ordered something, they don't need no. to have your email address unless you want a something to come to you to confirm. They don't need your Social Security number. They may need your credit card all right, and your phone to verify, whatever it is. But they, sometimes they collect a lot more than they ever really needed. And then you had another question, you know, um, how are you protecting it? Now, that one, when they ask that question, what kind of answer are they going to get, Kevin? Most <laughs> of the time, people don't know what to protect. They think, okay, I need to protect my financial records, my credit card statements, uh, the scanned pictures from grandma, um, and uh, my last will and testament maybe some closing papers and so they they think that's good okay fine and they and they and they protect that they do one backup that's probably done 4 years ago and if and they're that, financial what if, if they that. do that what if they do their tax return online how you know how are they protecting that are they saving that in a file are, is that encrypted well the fun thing is um, that's not that uh, encryption is a personal choice on a laptop these days um, but I will tell you that the moment that that laptop ceases to function the hard drive dies or it is stolen or removed from their possession without permission right right <laughs> um, people suddenly realize all of the things that they weren't protected right suddenly it becomes a matter of oh my gosh my children's uh, um, school address was in that data uh, right. was in the was in the directory um, my nanny's my, my contact file of all important people Absolutely. business people or friends or relatives that I can't find I just got an email this morning from a cousin of mine who lost all of her data with phone numbers and, and wrote called me and said, can you give me the phone number and the ad, and the contact information for this other cousin of ours? I cannot find it anywhere, right. you know, and I'm calling everybody to find my, to recreate my, my databases, right. I think that that, I read statistically not too long ago that everyone loses their hardware or has an incident and, you know, breakdown, whatever, mm -hmm. at least once every 18 months. That's an awful lot yeah. to be losing, rebuilding right. all of those connections, the everything. Right. And, yeah. it, and, and sometimes they're self-inflicted wounds. I mean, you know, powering off when you shouldn't and stuff like that. So that's right. why people really need to uh, know where, where their information is and what they need to protect so that they can prevent its loss in the event of any kind of failure. Right. So are the, are the risks greater today? than they were five years ago on the internet and, and mobile devices it's, it seems like they are to me yeah i mari how i they? would say no no think about how rapidly i mean just let, let me talk about uh an individual transaction you go online to you look like a neiman marcus lady so you go <laughs> online to neiman marcus mm. use your 
credit card and purchase a pair of Etayanier oh. shoes or something. You're going to buy those for me? No, I mean, you know, <laughs> as I said, you look like a Neiman Marcus lady, and I'm from Texas. So anyway, the, um, that, that transaction going back and forth is, is already uh, through your everyday browser in an encrypted manner. Now, if you think about all of the billions of transactions going across the Internet at any given moment, mm -hmm. it is extremely unlikely that someone is going to get very lucky to snag your credit card information as a result of that single point of sale purchase. Unless they the get Internet. the database that's sitting now, at Neiman Marcus you're, you're, that isn't encrypted. Um, <laughs> Once is it so rest? So what, what changed is, or what's changed with the Internet, is the fact that now there's more data than ever, just as you, you caught on, sitting in the cloud. Mm -hmm. And just like Willie Sutton, do you remember who Willie Sutton was from your law school days? You know, it sounds familiar. you got to remind me. He was me. one of the FBI's uh, first... Uh, number one on the 10 wanted list in about 1906. Okay. And he was a very famous bank robber. Took him forever. Was he the one who jumped out of the plane? No, 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 no. no, no. no. That <laughs> was, I can't remember, but I know. Um, uh, that was, uh, but in 1906 okay. when they arrested him, they said, uh, ask him, why do you rob banks? And his answer was, that's where the money is. <laughs> Um, why do people break into Neiman Marcus's database? Because it's a heck of a lot easier than trying to snag your individual credit card online. So if you're asking me is, are online transactions, individual online transactions safe, I would say yes. You have to ask how your information is being stored in that database right. in the sky. Right. But how about all these mobile devices? And I'm thinking about just the, the USB little plugs that you can plug in and, and take stuff out of and carry with you on a keychain. You know what I'm talking about. Right. Or how about, you know, the iPhone? Your cell phone. Or your cell phone or your PDA or your BlackBerry. All this huge amount of data that a lot of people are not really smart and they put all sorts of things on there, like their social security number. I don't know why they can't memorize that, that number, but <laughs> they put that on there. Or they put on, you know, sensitive data, maybe their passwords to get into their bank so that when they're traveling and they want to go to, you know, some hot spot, they can do some banking, which, again, is crazy to me. But, okay, so what about all those mobile devices? Isn't that pretty dangerous now? It's, it's extremely dangerous. Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly oh, Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Those, all of those devices that you just mentioned, even Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step -step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange. County. She's testified many times in Congress and California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mary. Send a message to the little chip in the hard drive inside that device and say, erase it.
Now, I have so a question. So that if it's if you're stolen, s- you get rid of it right away. Well, you don't have to be worried about it. Would you? I mean, think about it. Would you? Uh, I mean, if you could pay five bucks a month to know, and and that way you could confidently carry around this little mobile device or a very small mm-hmm. PDA or whatever, that you knew that you could call someone or even dial in and use a voice-activated system to just wipe the disc clean. Who cares? Especially with a laptop. Exactly. Especially. Exactly. I, think, I mean, we hear about so many of these data breaches when lap- laptops get stolen. Yes. Or, you know, we we got a call from we're Premier Bankers with Bank of America. We got a call from our Premier Banker calling me. She had just actually said, I just was watching you on TV. And uh, I went out to the car, and I went to get my laptop, and it was stolen out of my car. Mm-hmm. And your stuff was on there, Mari. (laughs) 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 So it's really nice to know that they can do one of these things where that it erases it when it's gone. When you notice that your laptop is stolen or lost or something, you can can erase the data. And, of course, you want to have the backup so you can put it into the new one. But, yeah, it it is one. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of how – remember how – you could there's a one number you can call with your credit card companies that they will immediately contact all your other card companies yes. to cancel your cards if your wallet is stolen. Yes. It's that kind of an idea, a one stop shopping where you can just let them shotgun know. blast yeah. and to let everybody you know. Right. And I, I call it a, a great big hammer. Okay. Uh, you know, the product uh, investigate products that can provide you endpoint data protection with. Uh, the ability to uh, erase and securely protect the information should you ever lose that information. So tell us what your company does. Well, that was actually a very nice lead-in. <laughs> <laughs> Data Castle um, is a provider of continuous data protection products. Um, the, we have software as a service, which we are providing to um, sellers, uh, um, service providers, um, individuals within a particular group of uh, network, and it does continuous backup. In other words, it's a uh, set it, forget it type of technology. And it's off-site backup? Is that yes, what it, it is? Yes, it goes to, yeah. it, it, it transfers, it trickles, that's mm-hmm. an easy, uh, it trickles to an offline database where you know exactly where it is. Right. You can verify it delete it, erase it at your own leisure. If you mm-hmm. lose a file, you can restore it yourself. Um, the, the really cool thing is that it uses um, the advanced encryption standard uh, that that's the NSA... What, that was what I was going to ask you because that's the thing that's scary. NSA, we use the NSA standard that is good enough for top secret documents. Uh, and we created Is that, oh, 250 or one 256 okay 256 uh, a- a- encryption okay. and most people don't care it's just it's it's big and strong big and well, burly it's bigger than 125 then. yeah exactly <laughs> and um, anyway the data is encrypted and as the so data while changes while it's sitting there while stored. it's sitting there it's stored and every time you make a change it cycles through it, uh, down to the minute every it, to verify if you've made any changes to that data. If it does, it copies only those little data blocks that you changed and sends those up to the vault so you have multiple little versions. So if you have a virus attack and you know that that occurred at 12.15, you can restore back to 12.10 and your data is perfectly protected. Right. Um, Also, uh, a feature that we have which is trademarked and unlike anyone else out there, we have what is called lock wipe trace. The files, whether they are connected to the internet or not, or corporate network, can be locked if the laptop is stolen, let's say, mm-hmm. or goes mm-hmm. missing, can right. be locked, and then it is an, uh, a um, wipe, an erase of all of the data is initiated. And we begin at that point then to ping um, the IP address. So the guy who just stole your laptop who's at um, Starbucks trying to hack in and figure out she your can password, find him. <laughs> we can then pass that information on to law enforcement. Those are the types of products that consumers, I think, 
are looking forward to coming out in the market because we it it it's it said it forget it and protect it. And it's it. not hard. No. You know that's the problem is that you know big companies have an IT person, right? Correct. And they can they can do a lot of things, work with companies, and you know the rest of the. The gang doesn't have to know about it. But in a small company, you need something that's simple, that can be set up, even, like you said, for consumers, for small companies. So you're for companies as well, well as for we consumers? Well, we go for, we are uh, an individual, small business, and enterprise. What is and it, like 70% of all businesses are in this country are small businesses? Well, um, they're, you're, uh, the so 70%, extremely, the, the frightening statistic is that 70 percent of all corporate data is on remote devices wow think about all of those financial yeah. records it's scary well why don't you give us your website because lloyd is telling us we only have a, a minute left here give us your website if your listeners are interested in finding out more about data castle we can be found on the web at www.datacastlecorp.com corp.com data castle well kevin we really appreciate this and we're going to have you come back because you're not that far are you no and you're, i love it you're, you're in seattle and you want to get to the sun and, and come back and get out of the rain you can come back or you can come back by phone and that's true and tell us more so we have been talking with kevin nixon i want to thank you so much for joining us today and he is the Director of Security Business Strategy and Product Marketing at Data Castle in beautiful Seattle, Washington. I love the food there. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, the host of Privacy Piracy. Join us every Wednesday right here from 5 to 6 p.m. and visit our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy to see our upcoming guests and listen to our archived interviews download podcast. Thank you, Lloyd. Good night. Stay private. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Our show airs every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m., but I'm also so pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And so we are so thrilled today that we are interviewing Dominic Mexico, who is the Inmate Services Correctional Program Supervisor for the Orange County Sheriff's Department. He's been with the Orange County Sheriff's Department for nine years, and prior to that, he worked for six years with the City of Ontario Community Services Department, assisting at-risk youth with resources, counseling, and referrals. Thank you so much for joining us, Dominic. Thank you for having me. Well, Dominic, what is the Correctional Programs Unit within the Sheriff's Department, and how did it come about? Well, the Correctional Programs Unit was uh, established over 20 years ago, actually, and came about because of Title 15 requirements, which basically Title 15 sets aside minimum standards for, in, for inmates in custody and programs. And so what we've done with the Orange County Sheriff's Department is developed the Correctional Programs Unit, which far exceeds Title 15 efforts. It encompasses classes, trainings, and things like that for inmates. So explain some of those services that the inmates get. We offer a variety of services for the inmates while they're in custody. Everything from GED classes, job development classes, positive parenting classes, substance abuse classes. Some of our more popular classes are computer business skills classes, which, are, which is actually taught through Rancho Santiago College. When the inmates graduate from this course, they actually get credit for college, which certifies them in Microsoft Office skills. One of the other programs we're really proud of is our culinary arts, our food services program that we offer, where once they graduate from that program, they uh, receive a serve safe 
certificate, which means that they can then work in food services and management upon release. Right, and the people who are in the Orange County jails are only there up to a year, so this is a shorter term, correct? Exactly, and what we try to do is, uh, depending on which facility they're at, they may be offered more opportunities for classes. So individuals that are what we call our minimum security facility out at Music could be enrolled in classes such as painting and vocational and horticulture and cabinetry, welding, things like that. Whereas individuals down at our other facilities like our, our central jail in Santa Ana or Theo Lacey facility in Orange County would benefit more from some of the direct classes such as substance abuse and, and domestic violence and things like that. Well, we want to find out more about what you're doing, and we're going to have you on again next week to talk about some of the volunteer activities. But tell us, if someone wants to become a volunteer, where can they go online to find out about this? Actually, if they wanted to volunteer, I think the the best thing for them to do would be to contact the Orange County Sheriff's Department and ask for someone in the Correctional Programs Unit. What we do is we put them through a very brief background check, and then we set them up with the appropriate volunteer coordinator. So if someone would like to volunteer for Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous panels, we would direct them to that specific person. Volunteers can also participate in religious services and things like that also. We want to just give the website, and we'll talk more about that next week, and they can go to Orange County Sheriff's Department. That is the the website is OCSD.org. Yes. Okay, thank you, and we'll have you on next week to tell us more. Thank you. 